All right, good morning. It's good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the teaching pastor. And if you're a guest, it's good to have you here at Legacy Church. Thanks for coming. Um, We've been going through the book of Galatians, and that's what we're going to pick up today. If you have a Bible or an app that you use, go ahead and flip yourselves over to Galatians 3. And we're going to be in verse 7 today. We're going to do some work there. Um, It's been a good book for us. It's been a good passage so far. I've enjoyed it. Today, not to be overly provocative or anything like that, but today does contain an idea, really a word, but an idea that is a struggle for, for a lot of people. I guarantee a lot of people even in this room. The idea of being cursed, right? It's one of those things that if it was not in the passage, we probably would be easy for us to slip right on by and not even touch it. But the idea of being cursed, and not only just being cursed, but being cursed by God. For not following his rules, for not following his statutes, for not following his laws, there's a curse on our head. If we zoom this out real quick just to jump into a passage, we see right there in Deuteronomy 27, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, which is all of us. There's a cloud that follows us from birth on, on, on forward through a life that, that we have a curse hanging over our heads. And I'll tell you, humanity in general really struggles with this idea really struggles with the idea of being cursed. Because, yeah, we'll do bad things, right? We live a good life, we do some bad things, but a curse seems a little strong, right? I mean, hey, is it, I'm a good person, you know? I mean, I make mistakes, but it's not like I rob bank people, you know? And those are usually the two examples we get, right? Murdering people and robbing banks. I don't know where robbing banks came from. Like, there's a special place in hell for people who rob banks. But it, it's not like I rob banks and murder people. I'm just a good person that has occasional bad days, And it's easy for us to see our own potential, and it's real easy for us to see the good inside of all of us, but when it comes to our shortcomings and our failures and the mistakes in our life, we have a lens of best intentions that we look through when we see that. That's how humanity is in general, in general. So I'm a great person who has bad days. Anyone ever heard that? Anyone ever said that? It's humanity's inability to deal with the fact that a curse follows them through life, right? I mean, is that just too strong to say? I mean, does God really curse people? I mean, I thought God loved people, right? And isn't that curse stuff just for the Old Testament? Wasn't that mean God, right? Are we living in the New Testament where nice God is here? I mean, isn't Jesus here to cancel out the curse? So humanity in general struggles with even knowing what to do with a thing called a curse. But not all humanity struggles with this, right? Some of us, a lot of us in this room, we understand how messed up we are. (laughs) We understand what a scandal we are inside, even if we don't look like it from the outside. So the struggle for us might not be the fact that there is a curse following us, but really what to do with it. How do we handle it? How do we look at it? Is it still with me? Because it feels like I don't have a deep relationship with God. So maybe there still is a curse on me by God. I don't know what that looks like. You know, I, I think... A lot of times, even letting go of our past and the shame that comes and the curse, the feeling of a curse on our lives is very difficult to deal with. I mean, do you ever just look in a mirror? Honestly, honestly, think about it. Do you look at a mirror and see yourself and see yourself as God sees Jesus? Do you really do that? I mean, honestly, 
Is that something you can pull off? Or do you see things that you have done? See things that have been done to you? Does that curse seem to kind of just follow you as a Christian? And how does Jesus take away the curse anyway? How does he really get rid of sin? There's some questions that we ask sometimes. I know questions that I ask. I mean, what are the thermodynamics behind what occurred on the cross? What are the gears and the mechanics behind how a curse is taken off? Because it just looks real mysterious, right? But how does that really happen? And then some people really struggle with the idea of Jesus being cursed. Being cursed. Jesus having a curse on his head by the architecture and by the design of God himself. Think about it. How could Jesus ever be cursed? I mean, I thought God loved him. I thought God was pleased with him. How can that happen? Was God really that cruel? I mean, it doesn't even sound right when I say it, does it? I mean, as soon as I say it, wasn't there something in you that went, ooh, wait a minute, he just said that. That it was by God's design that Jesus was cursed. But it's in the Bible, right? But it sounds like I'm teaching heresy. Sounds like I'm teaching something false. I mean, didn't God always love Jesus? So the text leads us well in that regard today, right? And we're picking this up where Paul is still building a really good case. Paul has been building a case for the last 10 weeks, we've seen, the first three chapters of Galatians, where he's contending, appealing, and pleading with a set of churches that have departed from the gospel. He's still putting the case out there that God is beautiful, and what God has done in mankind through the person, the acts, the life, death, and life of Jesus Christ was really a beautiful thing. He's doing that in the face of bad teaching that is coming in at every corner, invading at every opportunity. And it's a serious situation. It's so serious that Paul is doing what many of us do whenever we find ourselves in serious situations. I mean, have you ever caught yourself contending or pleading with someone that you see going in a weird direction, somewhere squirrely, and you do the best you can to turn them? You use different flanks, different arguments, different angles. You try to look through different lenses. That's what Paul's doing. Some of you have caught this. You hear people say that Galatians is a redundant book. It's a real redundant book. The thing is, is he's coming back to the same thing over and over and over again, but he's using different angles. He's coming from a different place. We'll try this. I'll appeal this way. And we do the same thing. You know somebody that's going in a weird direction. What do you do? You try to reason with them. Let me reason with you. And you use deep reasoning. But whatever, when that doesn't work, you start being, I don't know, big with your words, provocative with your words. Extreme words are coming out. So you could kind of shock them a little bit. So you can show that you really mean what you're saying. But what happens when that doesn't work? We usually tap the brakes and come back and calm down a little bit. And then we paint an illustration for them, right? Well, here's a metaphor I just thought of, and it's kind of like this situation. Does it help you see what's going on right now? And whenever that doesn't work, then we point backwards to an experience that was shared. Don't you remember when this happened? What happened to you? You appeal to a past experience. That's what he's doing right now, except today he's coming from the angle of Abraham. Before he gets in depth with dealing with what a curse is, he starts off with Abraham. And the reason he's doing that is because that's what the false teachers were doing. They loved leaning into Abraham. Abraham was the cornerstone for their arguments, right? And the reasoning probably wouldn't have sounded very silly to us. He was the first Jew. Very first Jew. He was circumcised. God gave him the initial charge to be circumcised, and he trusted God, and God was pleased with him. In fact, Abraham himself is a good, 
He's a good sign to us. He's a good example of what faith should look like. So they might say, they might say to us if we were there, if we wanted to be the spiritual children of Abraham and share the blessings that he got, wouldn't we want to have the same practice? Wouldn't we want to have the same level of devotion that he does? It seems like we would. I mean, are we really ready to scrap all that? I mean, Jesus is great, sure, but are we really ready to scrap what God gave us as a nation as a gift? I could see it sounding something like that. So Paul says, all right, you guys want to talk Abraham? We'll talk Abraham. He meets them right there on that ground. That is the flank he takes today. So let's just jump into verse 7. And he starts off like this. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Notice it doesn't say circumcision there, but faith. He's trading those words out. Because earlier you'd need to be of circumcision to be a son of Abraham. Verse 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. And of course, that's talking about Christ. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then he turns a corner. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And he borrowed that from Deuteronomy. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. This is what he's saying, and you probably already picked it up. He's saying, look, you guys make no sense at all. You make no sense at all. You're you're banking on your performance to bring favor and pleasure from God. But it's your lack of performance that's condemning you. You're leaning on the law. You're trusting in the law, but because you can't pull it off perfect, it's condemning you. It's like you're endorsing your own executioner. Well done. It doesn't make any sense. He's contending with them as hard and as passionately as he can. I'll tell you, God requires, here's something you've heard a million times, God requires 100% obedience from us. Think about that for a minute. If it was 20%, you think we could pull it off? I'm tempted to say, yeah. I know how jacked up I am too, but I mean, 20%, come on. 20%, could we pull that off? If you required 20% obedience, raise your hand if you think you could do it. You're so holy, all of you. (laughs) Right? 15. You're tempted now, right? 10. Put it up there. Anyone? What if it was 90? 90. 100%. That means, this is what that means, that if you were perfect in all things, you've never committed a sin and you've never omitted anything that would have been a sin. And you've reflected God's glory perfectly and intimately in every niche of your life. If you've done that, and then today, for a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second, a sideways thought, a not God-glorifying thought, blasts through your brain, just right through. And it's, it's come and it's gone and you didn't even know it was there. It was so fast. That one one billionth of a billionth of a second is enough to eternally condemn you. Eternally condemn you. Does that sound strict to anyone else in here? Does that sound hard to anyone? James 2.10, he says this. This is James. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. 
We see Paul earlier in 2 Corinthians say things like, for what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? I mean, what relationship can light have with darkness? I mean, what relationship realistically can a perfect God have with imperfect man? That's what we see. I mean, think of a normal day. Think of a normal day. Consider that brief moment before you walk into a room where there's a lot of people there. And you think, just for a minute, I wonder what they'll think of me. I hope they like me. I hope they're impressed with me. That's so seemingly small, isn't it? It's so small. And it was enough to eternally condemn you to hell. Right? Every sideways glance, every idle word, everything you look at and you capture in your mind and tuck away for later, every little thing that you do, every roll of the eyes at the wrong time, all of these things, enough to eternally condemn us. I mean, who has a chance under these rules? Who stands a chance under this? Romans 3.23 says no one. No one. We all fall very, 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 very short, and that on a good day. That on a good day. You know, when you think about it, it's all rather depressing. I find myself studying this, getting a little morose. Seems a little gruesome. Seems a little strict. Unless you remind yourself that we have a hero. Unless you come to the place where you're reminding yourself you have a hero and we need this hero, we need a replacement, right? We need a hero to come and replace us and redeem us. Salvation, this is what Christianity is. Christianity is based upon the idea that we have a hero coming to rescue us even if it means replacing us with himself. And we love that. I mean, the problem with Christians is not so much seeing that we need a hero. I think the problem with Christianity a lot of times is coming to the end of who we're going to decide that hero is. Who becomes that hero for us? I mean, let me explain it. I'll, I'll unpack that just a little bit. We, since the garden, all of humanity is fascinated, fascinated with the ideas of rescue and replacement. We love that, especially when it comes to the handiwork of heroes who will come in, find some helpless benefactor, some victim, some person in need, and rescue them, and even if it means, listen, even if it means replacing that person with himself, even if it means incurring damage or losing a reputation, even if it means some deep cost, they'll do it. And we love that stuff. Look at the top 250 grossing movies of all time, or even the top 100. I frequently look at these lists. It's very helpful. If you want to catch a glimpse of what culture really thinks, what entertains us, it's helpful. That list is full of moments and full of movies where you see this hero who's coming to not just rescue, but if need be, replace that person with themselves. And whether it's in a trench in World War II or an outer space or it's animated or it's a ship that's sinking or a hobbit or they got a cape on or whatever, it doesn't even matter. There's got to be a heroic moment where a hero comes in and takes care of the day, even if it means there being a replacement. And the main problem with us is this. We are okay being the victim. We're okay being the one in need, but we have to be the hero too. That's the problem. We don't mind being the one being held for ransom, but we got to be the redeemer too. We read the Bible and we're okay. We are okay looking at ourselves as a dirty tax collector or a filthy prostitute. I could see myself being that person, but we want to be the Jesus too in the whole thing. That's the big problem. 
especially in legalism. That's the big problem. We don't mind there being a hero in our story. We just got to be that hero. It's just got to be us. Paul is contending with a church today that is drifting towards edging out Jesus as the hero who is replacing them and rescuing them and inserting themselves. And that is no small thing. No small thing. Whenever we try to achieve and purchase righteousness in God's eyes by doing our own spiritual push-ups, right? This is what Martin Luther says to that. And by the way, when he reasons, he uses extreme language, just to let you know that's what he does. And you'll catch it here. He says, whoever seeks righteousness by works denies God and makes himself God. And that's what we've been talking about. He is an antichrist because he ascribes to his own works the capability of conquering sin, death, devil, hell, and the wrath of God. An antichrist lays claim to the honor of Christ. And he is himself an idolater, and he is the worst kind of infidel. <laughs> Luther. Me and Wes were talking earlier in the week. I don't, we don't think he had any friends. <laughs> He'd start talking like that. Not invited to any more parties. But, I mean, can you see yourself in this passage? Because I certainly can. I could see myself in there. Can you see yourself in Galatians right now? Listen, when Paul's writing this to Galatians, when he's writing the, the letter, the epistle to the church of, in, in Galatia, when he's doing that, that's not an archaic letter for us to look at as if we're watching a game from the cheap seats. He is writing to you. You are Galatian. This is for us. We're in this together, you and me. He's contending with us. He's appealing to us not to drift away from the gospel. Because I see it. Hey, I'll let Jesus qualify me. I'll let him do it because I know I need it. But I'm going to qualify myself too. Right? I mean, I, I agree that I'm messed up. I'm a disaster wrapped in a chaotic mess, all bundled up with just meanness. I know what is wrong with me. And I'm thankful that Jesus got me started. But I will take it from here, and I will earn this gift. And when I do that, and when I shift gears into that, Luther is calling me the Antichrist and the worst kind of infidel who worships himself. I think he's right. I think he's right. So what do we do? What do we do? I think the better question for us probably today is what has God done already? That should also always be what leads us to what do we do? What has God done for us already? And I will say he has brought us a hero to replace us. He has brought us our own personal and corporate sin eater, curse eater, to stand in our way and receive the sentencing that was rightly due for us. That is what he has already done. I mean, let's just look at Galatians 3.13. This finishes off the passage that we were going to look at today. And listen, this is the heartbeat of Christianity too. And this is the very pulse of Christianity. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And he took that from Deuteronomy too. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So he's used that word five, six times already, cursed, which is why we're spending so much time on it today. And I will tell you, Jesus Christ is the only person who has come here, breathed our air, eaten our food, laughed at jokes. He's the only person who has lived life without that cloud of curse over his head. The only one. He did it. 
And with that accolade to his name, he took our curse instead. He didn't have to. He took our curse instead. And he legally became sin. All sin. He became all sin. That small sin you committed as you got ready to come here this morning. Right? Your cute little baby sin. Right? Peter's denial. Paul's persecution. Thomas's doubt. He took it all. Wrapped up. Packaged. Put on his shoulders. As he took that penalty, that is how God saw him. He saw Jesus as the totality of sin and as the curse he was removing from his new family. That's how God viewed him. Look at Isaiah 53, who says it much better than I do. Listen, if you're new to the Bible, or the Bible is something you're still trying to get used to, Isaiah 53 is a great place to slap a bookmark, okay? Some scholars call that chapter the fifth gospel because Isaiah does such a brilliant job. God, through Isaiah, rather describes something that won't happen for 700 years. It sounds like he was there and he watched all of what happened to Christ. This was 700 years before Christ. And he says this in verse 4 Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And here it is. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When it comes to the pain that Jesus felt on the cross, what we typically conjure up is the physical horror of it all. And rightfully so, right? Rightfully so. It was a crucifixion. There is physical horror to it. There were spikes. There were thorns. There was lashings. There was all kinds of stuff going on, right? It is eclipsed. That pain is eclipsed by the relational horror, by the relational damage that happened to him on the cross as he, and I hear me, and I mean what I say right now, as he was rejected by God on that cross. As there was separation between him and God on that cross. Those were not trifle words when he says, oh God, oh God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't messing around. There was a delta between him and God. That was a rejection that was meant for us. We were supposed to have it. He took it. And this is why that hurts so much. Pain for us, relational pain, it differs and it flexes depending on the proximity of the relationship. Okay? Which means, okay, I'm here and I'm preaching. Some of you might not like what I'm saying, right? So if you're a guest here today, you you might go home. And you might type up a, a nice email and send it to us at info at legacyknoxville.com. And I'll get that email and I'll read it. Luke, you're a fruit loop. I came today and I brought a friend, parentheses. And you said this about Jesus being rejected on. And I don't like that. And you made a crack about the shack. And I like that book. And I've got it on my. And I, you might just go off on me, right? And I'll read it and I'll delete it. And I'll feel really rejected for about never. <laughs> I mean, I'll listen, but I don't know you, friend. I don't know you. There's no pro- there's, the proximity is distant. It's not going to sting. But if it was someone that I've been doing life with here, now that's different, right? It was like a Jeff Rowland or a Garrett or, gosh, Trevor, someone that I know, someone that I've been doing close life with. Well, that's going to leave a hole. I mean, this big. That'll put me on the ground. 
It would hurt me if I felt rejection like that. But not as much as if it happened to Dave or, or you know, Chase, someone that I've known, or Kevin, someone that I've known for over 15 years, which wouldn't hurt as much as if it was my son, which wouldn't hurt as if it was my wife. Do you see how when proximity gets closer, rejection just hurts more? It just stings. The point behind all that is human mind, our minds, our two-pound fallen brains cannot conceive of a relationship as close and as tight-knit as that between Jesus and God, God the Father and God the Son. We cannot even conceive of a relationship. In fact, they were one. It was his joy to be with his Father. It was his joy to be in the presence of his Father. And that was removed from him. That was removed from him. Do you see now the value now in Jesus being a curse for us. I mean, God came to punish sin. He came to crush sin. Right? Jesus did not, let's say it this way, God was not punishing Jesus because he was Jesus. God was venting wrath on Jesus because Jesus was sin, because he is the totality of the curse. He was punishing and executing justice and perfect judgment on Jesus because he was us. That's what was happening. There is this quote out of the book, The Shack. Listen, if you have that book, I'm sorry, okay? I've got to say it, though. The God figure in that book, he says this, I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish sin. It's my joy to cure it. Now, I do agree, it is God's joy to bring a remedy for mankind. I I agree with that. But it is his purpose to punish it, because he's perfect justice. So Isaiah disagrees with this author, whoever he is. I'm sorry. You know, again, this all sounds very depressing and very sad and very gruesome, but there is good news for us. Right? There's good news. This is the good news. In all of this, with Jesus taking a curse, there was an exchange made. There was an exchange. Athanasius used to call it the great exchange. Right? John Stott will call it the great reversal. There's an exchange made. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse many of you have by memory and all of us should commit to memory. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So look at the odd language right there. That Jesus became sin and that we become righteousness. Jesus embodied sin on that cross so that we would embody righteousness before God. Jesus was not doing what he did on the cross to look cool. He wasn't doing it because these guys around him, the murderous hands, were just too strong for him. He wasn't trying to be a good example. He wasn't just trying to do the right thing. He was trading places with you, and he was trading places with me. So that, and some of you are not getting your arms around this, I know it. So that, just as when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, and God booms down from heaven saying, This is my Son, in whom I am very pleased... That, I mean, you catch the moment there. You see that God is excited about what's going on. God's excited about Christ. He's excited about his son. He's excited about that moment. That's you. That's how he sees you. That's what happened after the exchange. I mean, can you get that? When you look in the mirror, can you get that? Do you think that God is that pleased? Do you think he loves you that much? That he's with you? Christian, do you see that? 
It's important that we see this. I mean, there's liberating news. Yes, he was crushed. Yes, he embodied the curse. But it's good for us. It's liberating for us. Luther goes on to say, let us become expert in the art of transferring our sins and death and evil to Christ and Christ transfer his blessing and his righteousness to us. Let us be experts, professionals in transferring the curse off of us. Let us do it often. But we don't like to do that, do we? We like to hold on to it. We like to snuggle with it and try to work ourselves out of that curse. We don't do a very good job with it. My basic question to you is why? Why do you do this? Why do I do this? Why do we try to be prisoner and heroic redeemer at the same time? Why do we, why do, we do this? I think some of you are probably starting to connect the lines right now, but if not, I'm going to try to make it a little bit more applicable. There are many people in here right now, many, I would say many if statistics are right, that feel like you're too dirty to have the curse lifted from you, almost like you deserve it a little bit, almost like you, you're owed the curse. You refuse to walk as one who has become righteous. You can't do it. And I don't know what you did in life, friend, or I don't know what was done to you. And I'll be willing to bet no one else knows either because I bet you keep that locked up, right? I will tell you this is why you retreat and you refrain from God's community, from God's presence, from God's relationships because you feel like a leper. You feel scabbed and dirty. And one place you'll never find a leper is around a bunch of clean people, right? won't find them. And we feel like lepers. And this is why relationships are next to impossible for you. Even when you're forming relationships, I know it. You keep it in the back of your mind, thinking they're going to be a really good friend to me. But they're going to get to this level, and that's about it. What about there? Because if they were to get any higher than that, then they're going to have to see my scabs. They're going to see how much of a leper I really am. And this is where you try to be your own hero. This is the place where you try to be your own hero. Your own remedy is to come and create a boundary, a buffer between you and that person, you and God, you and everyone around you. Because if they see you, then they'll see you, right? I mean, if they can get close to you, then they can see everything. You're not going to let that happen, are you? Not going to let that happen. There are still things that no one knows about you. Still, your spouse doesn't know about you family does not know about you and that isolation that you're trying to create for yourself that buffer that's promising salvation it's ripping you off it's plagiarism and you know it's not helping you and listen i'm not about to tell you that getting into a missional community is your remedy that's not the answer getting good relationships and accountability is not the answer there those are byproducts of the answer for certain But that's not the answer. The answer is seeing Jesus lifting a curse off of you because you don't have it anymore. That's the remedy. Beholding God as one is a curse remover by the work of his son. Because if you use space and proximity to get rid of that shame, to get rid of that curse, it's just never going to happen for you. You'll just keep finding new friends so that they don't get close. Your relationship with God will continually be stale and tailspin, right? Now, some of you don't struggle with this. Some of you don't struggle with feeling like you deserve the curse. Some of you feel like you you never deserve the curse, right? Some of you deal with the curse a little differently. You're a little bit above everybody. 
You walk in and the curse was just a little lighter for you. You might never say it like that for sure, but when you walk into a room full of Christians, you start estimating and assessing everyone, and then you rank yourself, usually pretty high, right? I'm up here, looking down, looking down on people, looking across the landscape of Christianity, literally thinking that your life preserver was just a little bit smaller than everybody else's, right? As if you're not those people. But friend, let me tell you, you are that person. You're not better than that person. You are that person. But Luke, they got like a hundred (laughs) problems. Yeah, your hundred problems might look different. You have a hundred problems too. But Luke, that person that's high as he sits here has got a million problems times ten. And you do too, and yours are different. You do too, and yours are different. Maybe you do have more highlighted passages in your Bible. Maybe you do show up to more things, and you think that makes you mature. You think that gives you literally a right to look down on people around you. Friend, if your heart was really that mature, you would see the depth of need for grace in your own life. If you catch yourself pointing out other people's sins without immediately being able to look at your own sin, then you've arrived at a dangerous place. You've arrived at a place where you have forgotten that the gospel is only for damaged people. The gospel is only for immature people. It's only for failures. And you might have risen above that might be a problem, right? might be a problem. Some of you, you're not holding on to the curse as if you deserve it. Some of you might not be dealing with the curse as if you never needed it or never had it. It wasn't very heavy for you. But some of you, I think, feel that the curse is probably a little too heavy for God. So you have to help out. You have to assist. You have to get in the way and try to prove that you are worth what has happened for you. Let me just tell you right now, friend, this is why you feel burned out. Can I just talk to this for a second? This is why you feel flat out worn out, burned out. I just need a vacation from life. I just need a way out. I need a break. I am burned out. I'm wore down. That's because you're laboring. You can't get tired unless you're laboring. Now, has God called us to labor within him or rest within him? I mean, we just remind you, right? God worked six days and then he rested. He didn't need to rest because he was tired. (laughs) It's not like he was like, "Woo, I need a day. What do you guys think? And he just took a break. He didn't do that. He he did not need the break. But that's that's a sign for us. Did you know that Jesus brought us a true and better Sabbath? Christ himself brought us a true and better Sabbath. Or instead of striving to please God, instead of just working and working and working to get pleasure from Him, to get favor from Him, to get salvation from Him, we can rest. We can rest because we're there. Striving is over. Jesus did all the work. And some of us, we're not Sabbathing. We're working. We're laboring. And we're feeling very, very worn out. This is me. I'm a spiritual workaholic. And I'm in this camp in spades. You know... When you come to the list of top grossing (coughs) movies, number 115 is Saving Private Ryan. That's my number one movie, but that's number 115 as far as the fans are concerned. Now, you don't have to have seen this movie to understand what I'm about to say. But in the end of that movie, at the tail end portion, there is this moment where Captain Miller, Tom Hanks, 
is gasping his last breath. He's been shot several times. He's about to just give up the ghost. He's just laying there up against the wall. And then a young Matt Damon comes by, Private Ryan. And, and they have this little interchange just for a second, just long enough for Tom Hanks to say, earn this, earn this. And then he dies. Earn what? Several men went out to save Private Ryan, a young Private Ryan. Many of them, most of them, gave up their life for it. It's obvious to Captain Miller, obvious to Private Ryan. He was saying, you need to earn all of this. Earn it. Right after that, there's a scene where a much older, like 60 years older, a much older Private Ryan is standing over the grave of Captain Miller, kind of wringing his hands. You can tell he's got some anxiety in him about the moment. But if you look deeper, you can tell there's some anxiety just in his life. He's got this big, beautiful family behind him. They all have their shirts tucked in. They're all blonde-haired, you know, blue eyes. And you just get the feeling that he did good in life. You just get that feeling at the end of the movie. But he says this. Every day I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could, and I hope that was enough. You ever feel like that? I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes I earned what you have done for me. This is how we get with Jesus. This is how we get with Christianity. I hope I've done enough. I hope I've done enough to earn the gift that you have given me. Can we worship a God who views, viewed his son as a curse on the cross in order to view you as a treasure on his earth? Can we worship a God that does that? I mean, let me ask you, I mean, I'm closing this down. As a Christian, if you're a Christian in here, right? If you're a Christian, let me ask you, let me just say to you, his posture towards you is good. It's really good. His visage, his face towards you is full of joy, right? His hand that comes towards you, it's bringing grace, favor, love, and gift. And I think these are hard truths for a lot of you as Christians. I think it's hard for you to see that his posture towards you is good. I think you might see it like I struggle with sometimes, which is maybe his posture towards me is intolerant. Just barely tolerating me. He's barely on board. All right, Luke, any day, we're all waiting for you to get it right. (laughs) You know, whenever that's going to be, you know. I mean, that's how it's easy for me to see God sometimes. In his face towards us, is is it hard for you to believe that it's really full of joy, or do you see a grimace, pursed lips, just, hmm, with you? Is it hard for you not to see the hand coming instead of there being judgment, or instead of there being love and grace with like a paddle in it? Just waiting for you to screw up, waving it, reminding you. He's got this paddle waiting for you to screw up. I think it's hard for us to see around that sometimes. I hope that in these passages you see how much God loves you. The depth of his love for you. The depth of what happened on that cross is a reflection of his depth of love for you. The lengths he went through to make you clean. I don't know where you're at as a Galatian today. I don't know what best described you earlier. I don't know what the curse looks like for you. But what I can tell you is this. Unless you see Jesus correctly, unless you see God as generous through crushing a curse on the cross, it will always stain and strain your relationship with Him. 
You simply cannot be close to God and be self-righteous, wondering if you've done enough, trying as hard as you can. You can't do that at the same time. It's hard for me to really relate to God and be close to God if I'm so trying to just impress Him like an employee would a boss or a student would a teacher. I just hope I'm, I hope I'm earning this gift. I hope I'm doing a good job. I hope it's been enough for you. It's hard to be close to a God. It's hard to really, really relax and just enjoy Him being a father when you're doing that. Even your pride. You can't be close to God if you have pride, always thinking that you don't need a whole lot of help. Hard to be close to a God when you're in that place where you're looking down on others. So busy being heroic, you have a hard time worshiping a hero. Be strained by isolation. Hard to be close to a God when you've built a buffer between you and Him. Awfully close to have those beautiful moments where He's sharing revelation and leading you by His Holy Spirit. Really tough to see that happen. You cannot live a worthy life reflecting His glory, enjoying your life, unless you see Jesus' heroic replacement of you at His cost. By becoming a curse so that it could be removed from you, you cannot do it. You cannot do it. You'll always try to be the hero. You'll always try to be your own Jesus. You'll always try, as the Galatians did, to edge him out of your story, replacing him with yourself and let, instead of letting him replace you with himself. Right? Now, if you're in here and you are not close with God, you are not what we would call a Christian, right? Far from God. And you know it, or you'd least suspect it heavily, right? I will say that God's posture towards you is not so much as father, but as judge. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm not saying that to scare you, right? Not that I have a a problem with hell, fire, and brimstone preaching, because I don't have a problem with it. I'm not doing that in order to frighten you. But I will let you know and consider yourself served. He will judge. He does love you. He loves his creation. And he loved you enough to bring his son. We just explained that. Paul did a great job of teaching that to us. He takes great joy in his son being the remedy, but make no mistake, friend, make absolutely no mistake. He is perfect justice. He is perfect justice, and he will punish sin. I don't care what the shack says. He is going to punish sin. And it was either punished in Jesus or it will be punished in you. Because your sin is condemning you. Someone is going to be the hero. Friend, you've been the hero of your story. Your own sad, melodramatic story. You've been the hero. Salvation is where another becomes a hero and you stop worshiping yourself. Right? The way God looks at you, it's based on righteousness. If you rest in his righteousness and have become righteousness, then he's able to relate to you and call you son, call you daughter. But if you rest on your own righteousness, your self-righteousness, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What pool do they have together? So he has given you a heroic, replacing, curse, remover. That's the good news for you today. There is a hero, friend. It's not you. There is a hero. I just, I plead with you to take that seriously today. I'm pleading with you to take that seriously today. I mean, with the fear of God on you, take that seriously today.